Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. Uh, God had given me the lesson on the cave. I know most of us were here for that. Some of us weren't. But we had did the lesson on the cave. Well, the next Wednesday, he started giving me the cave part two. You're not the only one. It was a title he gave me in some passages. Um, and, of course, Mama taught Wednesday, so I hadn't taught it yet. And then Saturday, when Amelia came, and she made the comment about, feels like I'm living in a cave. And then Elizabeth said, you're not the only one. And I was like, that's the lesson he gave me. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly what it's titled, The Cave. You're not the only one. So, um, so I was like, okay, yeah, definitely. We should probably, probably do this. So just to do a, a quick little recap of the premise of The Cave for those who weren't here. Um, we basically did a study of um, we did a study on David, uh, and he was prophesied over as a child by Samuel the prophet that he would be the king of Israel. And of course, years later, he ended up slaying Goliath, and he moves into the palace with Saul. He uh, he becomes a warlord for Saul, wins all kinds of battles. He's there for many years, grows up as basically a son to King Saul. Uh, good friends with his own son, Jonathan, until the people start liking David more than Saul. They start singing about how uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, and then Saul got jealous and decides he's going to kill David. Now, there may have been a part of Saul that really knew that David was meant to be king, because if you remember Samuel had also prophesied to Saul years earlier that God would take the kingdom from him and give it to another that was better than him. So having that in his heart might have kind of fueled his hatred and jealousy of him to some degree. So he chases him and tries to kill him. And David, in his um, anguish and panic, goes on the run and runs to a cave. And in the first cave in Adullam, we see that he is crying out to the Lord. We find that this cave is a place of humbling um, and a place of prayer, a place of revelation. It's a place where he was in hiding. And all throughout our Christian lives, you will find there will be times when the enemy will attack and God will allow it for the purpose of driving you back to that place of prayer, that place of humbling, that pray, place of crying out and seeking to the Lord. And that was basically the premise of the cave. It's being in that place where God has you in hiding for a season while he's preparing you for kingship, while he's preparing you for a calling, while he's preparing you for greater things. And those that seek to leave the cave before God has called them out of it will find themselves in the woods with Saul and killed before their time. It ties into the teaching on the hiding where you know Moses was hidden in the palace from Pharaoh for a season because had Pharaoh known who Moses was before his time, he would have killed him. The same thing with Christ. Christ. God hid who Christ was. It's all part of the hiding. So to basically just kind of recap, uh, the thing about the cave was it was a place where God had put him for a season. It was a place he did not want to be in. 
It was a place of anguish and torment and betrayal and hurt. He was chased there by Satan, who by Saul, who was a type of Satan, but he chased him to the cave and God allowed it for a purpose. And one of those purposes is to prepare him to be king. He was making him have the character that was required for God to have the right king. Had David stayed in Saul's court, he would have been a warlord, he would have been rebellious, he would have been prideful, he would have been arrogant, he would have been spoiled. The truth is, is that the cave humbled him. The cave broke him. The cave taught him how to commune with God. It taught him how to have a prophetic cry. It taught him how to receive revelation. It was in that place of hiding that God prepared him to be king. So, in the story of David, the cave was a place of humbling and hiding, a place of prayer, a place of revelation, of, of, of obtaining a prophetic cry, and revealing of kingship or his calling. The cave is to the called like a cocoon is to a butterfly. You know, I've used that example before of the, uh, the butterfly, how when it goes into the cocoon, it's in there for a season where it's protected while it's being changed, it's being transformed, and it goes through a struggle in that cocoon. If you were to help it get out of the cocoon prematurely, it would die because it wouldn't have the strength to fly as a butterfly. The struggle that it goes through in the cocoon actually gives itself, gives its wings strength. It gets the blood flowing and builds enough strength in the wings that once it finally gets out of it, it's able to fly. So the, the cave is kind of that for the Christian also. When you find yourself going through a situation, betrayal, or a loved one that you're praying for, salvation, you know, something has come against you, you're under demonic attack, you know, you're being slandered, whatever it is, that thing that chases you to that place of prayer where it's just you and God and you've got to cry out and, and, and learn to hear from God and build that strength that you get from fighting that struggle in that secret place with God gives you the wings to fly once it's time for him to let you out of it. It's struggle plus timing plus revealing a changed you. The cave is like hiding in the very arms of God. You know, it's funny because we, we look at Psalms 18.31 that says, Who is God? Save our Lord. And who is a rock? Save our God. Or we look at Psalms 95.1 that says, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. When he had to run to that cave, he ran to the rock. He ran. It's almost like being held in the bosom of, of God himself, the arms of God or that cave, that place where in your brokenness, your desperation, he was so betrayed. David was so betrayed. This was a man that he looked at as a father. And now, and he's had these promises from God that he's going to be king, and now he's running for his life and living in a cave. But it, it was in that place where he cries out to God, where he feels the compassion and the love and the revelation, and he starts to hear from God, and he actually learns how to be a king. He learns how to take direction from God. He learns how to seek God, because later on we see that he's in situations where he's winning battles and he's being loved by these cities, and he could have started to move in pride or move on his own and think, oh, well, I've made it. But because of the lessons learned in the cave, he still took that time to seek God and he prayed to God and God told him in that prayer time as he sought God, 
Saul's coming and the people are going to turn you in. Run. And he had to run back to another cave. So he ended up back in the cave situation again. But because of his obedience, God delivered Saul into his hands in that cave. So big recap bringing us up to today. But before we do that, I have to ask, for those of you that were here for that study, how many of you would say that you have been or are currently in the cave? I think that's pretty much everybody that was here for the study. I agree. Because I knew that it was for me when I got it. And then as we're teaching it, every so many people were like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so, again, that brought back to that place of the thing about the cave is it feels so alone. And that's one of the things that was kind of talked about Saturday night when the topic was brought up again about how people feel so alone. It's all, I'm the only one going through this. You know, it's just me. Well, you know, the nature of the cave is to make you feel like that because in the cave it is just you and God. But you're not the only one experiencing that experience. You really are not alone. You're not the only one. And that's the premise of tonight is to recognize that you're not the only one. And if you are going through this experience, it's a very good thing. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18. And instead of David this week, we're going to look at Elijah. Accidentally, actually, when I started, I accidentally, well, I just opened and I started reading. And I was like, huh, I'm reading in a cave again. I think the lesson continues. Yeah, we we covered that too, the the revelation that comes in the cave. For those that didn't hear the lesson on the cave, it's up on the podcast. You can go back to the podcast and listen to the full lesson. But in 1 Kings 18, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, which was the king, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went and showed himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Now just to give you a little back history, uh, King Ahab was wicked, was very bad. He was the husband of Jezebel. Jezebel was a priestess or a daughter of the, her royal family was Phoenician, if I remember right, and they were Baal worshippers. And she was determined to destroy every priest of God and replace them with priests of Baal. And she had done very much that, had killed many of the uh, the priests of God. And now that was Ahab's wife. And Ahab had allowed all of this, so he was a very wicked man. So Ahab called Obadiah, which was a governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And I told Danny when I read it, because, you know, I'm I'm on this 40-day fast, and the first week of the 40-day fast, God had me on just bread and water. And I'm, like, stuck there, like, halfway through this bread and water week, and I'm reopening this up, and I read it, and it's like, and he hid 50 prophets in a cave and fed them bread and water. And I was like, Danny, I'm not alone. (laughs) 
I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. It's like, and that's like the theme of the lesson. I'm not the only one. I'm, I know why I'm eating bread and water. I'm so tired of bread and water. Um, so Obadiah, who was a governor in the house of Ahab, uh, he feared the Lord. So when Jezebel started killing off all the priests and the prophets, he hid many of them in a cave. So that brings us back to the premise from the first lesson, lesson that place of hiding. Now the bread represents what? Christ. Bread always represents Christ. He is the bread of life. And the water represents the Holy Spirit, the Word, Christ again. So they were fed bread and water while in the cave. When we're in that cave, when we're in that place of hiding, when we're in that secret place with God, we are literally being fed the Word of God. We are being fed on the presence of God, on Christ himself. So we need to make sure, because if you don't have that in the cave, you will die. If you get chased to a cave and you don't fill it with the word of God and with the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you're going to die in the cave. So um, move ahead to the next chapter. Now, if you continued to read through that chapter where we were, uh, that goes into the story where Elijah went and poured water on the uh, the altars and then lit it on fire. Well, God sent the fire. That's when he showed up the prophets of Baal. Because remember, the prophets of God had been killed and they had been replaced by Jezebel, which pretty soon we're going to do a study on Jezebel. Uh, they had replaced, though, Jezebel had replaced them with the prophets of Baal. And so now the Israelites were all worshiping Baal through these prophets. So Elijah goes and challenges them, basically. You know, if you can cause this wet altar to burn, then, you know, we'll see, pray to your God, see if he can light it. And, of course, they couldn't. And so he prays, and then God catches it on fire, dries up all the water, all this stuff. And then the people are incited because they're like, wow, your God really is stronger. So while they're excited, he incites the people. They take all the prophets of Baal down to the river, and he slays them all. So the next time somebody tells you that prophecy is only to make you feel good, say Elijah killed them. Elijah gave words they didn't like, and then he killed them. I don't think they were edified, but the nation was. So Venice brings us to chapter 19, because after this point, Jezebel gets really mad. First of all, she has tried to kill every prophet of God in the nation. But this one little pesky prophet got away. Not only does he show up her prophets, he kills them all. And it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel, the sword represents the word too. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she's basically saying, you know, by her gods, she's swearing that I will die like they did if I don't get you killed before tomorrow. And, yeah. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Well, he took off. And came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So, like, he's starting to really pout now. He's like, okay, God, I did enough. Now they're definitely going to kill me. Why don't you just do it now? I'm not better than all these other prophets anyway. Just take me out because there's no way I'm going to survive this. Yeah. We're also going to do a lesson one day called the Pouting Prophets. And as he laid and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals in a cruse of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. First angel food cake. Angel food cake. <laughs> He's still on that bread and water fast. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And then when I read that, I was like, I'm on a forty-day fast, and he started it with nothing but bread and water, so I guess that means I'm going to have the strength to make it for the rest of the fast. Because he ate bread and water, and then he said it'll get, gave him the strength. Basically, the angel put food from heaven. The angel put a cake and water, and he drank it. And it says he went in the strength of that food for 40 days. So that food actually gave him the strength to get to this cave. And he didn't eat or drink anything else for that 40 days. That food that the angel provided gave him. Yeah, it gave him what he needed. I'm not doing that. It says, it, says he ate, it says he ate twice. So he did eat twice. twice. That's right. Yeah. All right. So he went to this mountain. And he came thither unto a cave. Oh, here we go. A cave again. And lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doth thou hear, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous, very jealous. For the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So here we go. He feels like he is the only one. Sounds kind of like David cried in the cave in that prayer in, in, in Psalms. He, he's in the cave, and he's like, I am the only one left. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And he beheld the Lord pass by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountain and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Now, this is kind of interesting. Because when the devil chases you to the cave, that place of hiding and humbling and praying and seeking the Lord for revelation, all manner of chaos is going to break out. Whatever the situation is that has you in this cave is not going to get better right away. The devil is still attacking. Notice how it says that, 
first there was a wind and it did all this damage, but God was not in the wind. But it says that God was standing there. It says that the wind passed before God. God was not moved by the wind, but he was not in the wind. Therefore, the wind was the enemy. Then the earth was shaken. There was an earthquake and then there was a fire, but it keeps saying God was not in that. So if God was not in it, then it was the enemy. It was the devil throwing a hissy fit, but there was a protection in that cave. God was not moved by any of it, but it was a testing of Elijah's faith because he could have run. He could have gotten scared and he would have missed had he freaked out in the chaos that was around him and not been faithful to wait and stay in that cave and wait on the voice of the Lord. He would have missed the revelation that came in the quiet voice after the chaos. Kind of going back to the lesson on David where we said it started in frustration but ended in revelation. It's kind of the same thing. Elijah in the cave was in chaos, storm, shaking, and burning. But stand fast and be not shaken because in the quiet that followed, God spoke. Had Elijah been frightened away by the storm, disheartened by the earthquake, or discouraged by either the fire or the fact that God was not in any of them, he would have missed the quiet revelations that followed. Okay, going on, go to the next verse. He stuck it out till he heard from God. So if you are in that place and things are still going crazy, keep praying, keep waiting, stick it out until, yeah, until you hear from God. You know, I had, I had a situation a while back where I was driven to that place of prayer and this stuff was going on and it was so chaotic and it was so disheartening and I could, I knew that it was the devil, but I knew God was doing something, but it wasn't making sense. And it was starting to get kind of annoying when you're in that place where you just want to know what's going on, you know? And so finally it got to the point where I just went and I sat on the floor in the living room and I told God, I said, I'm sitting and I'm not moving until you tell me what is going on. And when I came to that place of, look, I am, I will sit here for a week, but you're going to tell me what's going on. Within five minutes, he, he broke it all down and it all made sense. And then he told me to go listen to a sermon and directed me to a sermon that just exploded. Like it changed everything. It made everything make sense. What he had given me, it tied it all together. It had full revelation. I knew exactly what was going on, what to do. And I sent it to several people and it even helped a lot of them in their circumstances. When you come to that place where you're just going to not let the storms take your focus off or freak you out or run you out of the cave or get you to act out. Wait until you hear from God. And that's where he was. He's like, I'm sitting here. I'm not moving until you tell me what's going on. I don't know what to do. So it continues. And it was so when Elijah heard it, the still, small, quiet voice after all the chaos, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What does thou hear, Elijah? And he said, basically, what are you doing here? I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Again, God, I've been driven to this place because I was doing what you wanted me to do and the devil came after me and I am the only one that's left. I'm the only one 
that's going through. I am the only one that has obeyed you and did what you told me to do. I'm the only one that's faithful. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, Elisha the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Neola, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. In other words, your disciple. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elijah slay. So he said, he told him to anoint these two men to be kings, and then to anoint Elisha to be prophet. And he's saying that he's going to bring revenge through these people. Those that escape the sword of the king will be killed by the sword of the prophet. So he got his revelation. He got his instructions. He stuck it out. But you notice how God really didn't give him great promise in the cave. He gave him the answer. He gave him what he needed. He told him what to go out and do. I mean, I'm sure it would have been awesome to, to hear him say, okay, well, I'm going to make you king and you're going to take all this over. But that's not always the case. Sometimes the cave is for the king and sometimes it's for the remnant. Sometimes it's for the rebellion. Sometimes it's for those that are standing against opposition. Remember, the early church started in the caves and the catacombs. They were in hiding. They were the remnant. They were the resistance. And that's what he was in this case. Yet I have left me seven, and this is God speaking, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So here he is crying in his cave, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's been faithful. All of Israel has forsaken you. All of Israel has turned down, tore down your altars and, and worshiped Baal. And God's like, I hate to burst your bubble, but I've saved unto me 7,000 that have not been the need of Baal. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll go now. So though the cave is kind of designed to feel that way because it drives us to that intimacy with God, we're not the only one. You're not the only one. You feel like it. Because you are alone with God, and that's what it's meant to be. But your circumstance is not isolated to you. Others do go through it. So he said he saved 7,000 that have been faithful to him, that didn't bend the knee to Baal or kiss him. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And you can stop there. That's enough to that. Now, he throws the mantle, and we did that, that kings, prophets, and priests wore mantles, but that just meant that he was going to be his disciple. Elijah got his instruction in the cave. And we get a lot from last week, from the other, the other lesson about the lessons learned in the cave. But the, the main focal point that I want to bring home of this week, when you're in that place, as lonely as it seems, remember, you're not the only one. Sometimes we think we're the only one that has it right. We're the only ones that are hearing from God. We're the only ones that are going through this heartache. We're the only ones that are getting attacked. We're not the only ones. 
though it's not as many as it should be because there are not that many faithful out there. Of all of the, the people of Israel, many had bowed the knee, most had. But he said, wait, there's still 7,000 that are just as faithful as you. Remember when David was in the cave and he thought he was the only one, before he knew it, God had sent 600 men to him in the cave. He wasn't the only one. So I would say that point one for this lesson is you will visit the cave more than once on your journey. So don't be surprised if you find yourself out of the cave for a short season than being run back to it. You know, there was several times when I was ministering in Baton Rouge where I was going through these situations where God would send me out to give a prophetic word to people, somebody, a church, a person, whatever, a minister, a ministry that I knew they didn't want to hear, but he wanted me to give it, so I would give it, and then he would tell me I would always get a word about their safety in Goshen. I knew when I got that word about their safety in Goshen, I was about to get run back to a cave. I knew Saul was coming because no matter what happened, when I got that word, then somebody was going to attack me. Somebody was coming against me. Somebody was getting mad. Slander was coming. Something was happening that would run me back, and God would send me back to that place of prayer. Deliver the word. Back away. Wait. Pray. Seek the Lord. Get revelation. Get instruction. When he tells you to leave, go out. Do it again. You get run back to the cave because there's lessons that we have to learn in that quiet place with God that takes more than one visit to learn. The desperation of the situation causes activation. Your faith is activated when it becomes desperate. And when we're chased to the cave, we get desperate. And that's what it comes down to. The things that chase you to the cave are usually betrayals, attacks, heartaches, and humblings that drive you to get in that quiet place with God where you feel like nobody else can understand and nobody else can help you. Illnesses. Satan chases us to the cave, but God catches us there. You can look at the cave, like I said earlier, kind of like the arms of God. When you rest in, in his bosom, you've been chased there by some trauma, some fight, some struggle. God catches us there. And the second point that I would say about tonight's lesson, of course, is the main point is that you are not the only one. There is always a remnant. There's always a remnant church. There's always been a remnant church, and there's always only been a remnant church. What we think of as the church, you know, the what encompasses the modern, the, the secular church, is not God's church. I like how Jimmy said it. You have the church with a small C, then you have the church with the capital C. You look at the capital C as the true church, those that are truly following the teachings of Christ, being obedient, seeking God, going to that quiet place, and asking him what to do and walking out those instructions. And then you have all of those who are playing church or mocking church or disgracing church. But there's always a remnant. In Elijah's case, all of Israel nearly was worshiping Baal. And though he thought he was the only one who wasn't, God humbled him in the cave and reminded him, nope, there's still 7,000 out there that are just as faithful as you. Now get up, quit whining, Go do what I'm going to tell you to do. You're going to anoint a king, and you're going to raise up a prophet. You've got a job to do. He kept him alive for a reason. It was to raise up more remnant, and it was to unite the remnant, which is actually what David did also. When he was in the cave, God brought the remnant to him, but he brought those who would not bend the knee to Saul, the archetype of Satan. You are not alone. 
you have simply joined the remnant. And I would say that as an encouragement for all of those that find themselves in the cave. Because for those that have never experienced this, it's because they're not part of the remnant church. They're part of the small C church. If you find yourself in a situation in that cave where people are betraying you, people are coming against you, loved ones are hunting you like David went through, then you are part of the remnant church. So who spends time in the cave? Rulers and remnant. Rather, you're being trained to rule or to revolt. You will get sent to the cave. So who are the remnant? Because we touched on the rulers. That was David last week. In this one, we look at the remnant. The remnant is the real church. Those who have not bent the knee to Baal, the uncompromising, faithful, spotless bride of Christ, the remnant church is the true church that exists hidden among the oceans of counterfeits. They know the cave very well. From caves to catacombs to modern homes, God himself teaches, directs, and protects his remnant church, his warrior bride, in the hiding place of intimate, fervent prayer, worship, and communion that we call the cave. More often than not, driven there by the secular church and those of it who want only to worship and glorify self and not be reminded of God's words or convicted of their lack of obedience to it. Turn with me back to Psalms 142. We're going to look one more time at David's prayer in the cave because there's a point made in this prayer that ties in with tonight. We had read this during the other one. The whole chapter, very short, is a prayer that David prayed when he was in the cave of Adullam. And he said, And I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knowest my path. In the way wherein I walked have they privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. He thought he was the only one. He was all alone. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. And this is what the cave does. The reason it's designed to make you feel so alone is because it drives you to depend on God. It drives you to commune with God. It's sad and it's a shame that the only time we truly commune and spend time with God is when we feel like everyone else has rejected us, has abandoned us, or has turned against us. We make him our last resort. I think if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have to spend so much time in the cave. But it's when we feel that there is nobody else that we go to him and spend time with him. Because that's what happened to Elijah and that's what happened to David. And once they came to that point, then God revealed to them, it's okay. You're not the only one. You're not alone. And he sent the 400 men to David and then the 200 more, which were the 600. And then he revealed the 7,000 to Elijah. So Elijah thought he was the only one, but he wasn't. God had a remnant. 
those that would not bend the knee to Baal, the 7,000. David thought he was alone, but he wasn't. God had a remnant, those that would not bend the knee to Saul, the 600. You feel alone because you are part of the remnant church, capital C. Chosen from out of the compromising church, the world church, small c. The reason you feel so alone, and I say this um, mostly for the podcast, I think, and for people out there that are listening that feel like there's nobody that understands them. Nobody gets it because that's what we were talking about Saturday night. You know, when you feel that I'm so alone, we are blessed because here we at least have each other and we don't have that absolute aloneness that a lot of people out there have in other churches, in other situations, in other circumstances where they literally are the only one. When I was little, I used to say it kind of feels like you're in a black and white world and you're the only one in color. You know, it's like you're just so different. But, you know, you're 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 in a place now. And that's why, you know, people that have that remnant church heart are drawn to us. But it's a really sad place in the world for those that don't have that connection, that don't have a place to be. But I would encourage them by saying the reason they do feel so alone and so different and so apart whenever they're communing with God and everybody else thinks they're just crazy, it's because you're part of the remnant church. You're part of the true church. You're part of the ones that God has called out to be set apart, to be different, to have a purpose. You are not alone. You're just in a cave waiting for God to call the remnant together. And that was one of the beautiful things about the cave. When David went to the cave, he called the remnant to him. When Elijah went to the cave, he gave him the instructions on how to find the remnant. So I would also say for those that are listening, when you feel so alone, seek God in that private place, in that quiet place for the instructions, and let him either send the remnant to you or give you instructions on how to get to them. You know, and if you ever find yourself in that place to do the same because he's got a purpose for it. Go to Romans 11, verse 2. We're going to close with two passages. 11, Romans 11, verses 2 through 5 say, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Want ye not what the scriptures saith of Elias? We're just actually talking about Elijah. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Even in Paul's time, he spoke of the remnant church. There has always been a remnant, and there has always only been a remnant. And then we're going to close with 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 through 14. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. When you learn directly from God in the cave, the devil can't take it from you. 
be assured. When you learn from men, when you go hear stuff that's repeated, the devil can quite easily confuse you, confound you, or tell you that it was manipulation, it's not true. But when you truly spend that time in desperate prayer and communion with God and he reveals things to you and confirms it in the myriad of ways that he does, you know that it's true. Cling to those things, hold on to it, obey it, no matter what, you are the remnant church. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.